You're listening to American Timelines. American Timelines. American Timelines by History for Jerks. History for Jerks. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Do you know what episode this is? No. No idea. I'll tell you. 70 something. I know. What is it? 79? 77. Oh. You thought we'd accomplish more than we have. All right. Welcome oh, to long. another episode of American Timelines. Not just another episode of American Timelines, but episode 77, y'all. And I'm Amy. Inching up closer to 100. And I am. Your job. Television. Uh, I'm American game show uh, celebrity Bruce Valanche. All right. This Don't is I look a, like Bruce Valanche to you? This bit's been seen some better days. Bruce, I'm Bruce Valanche. Okay. Um, Ladies love This Bruce is the Valanche. podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things from the past. And we do it year by year. Yeah, we, that's what we do. LL Cool BV. They and we do it month LL by month, actually, is late, what we should say. Yeah, month by month or... Yeah, kind of day by day, actually. Yeah. Ladies love cool Bruce Valanche, is what they say. We do it day by day. <laughs> and uh, anyway, oh, we are in the end of 1963 yeah, today. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, we're in fall. We're in fall of 1963. But before we jump in, I need to make some apologies about last episode. Corrections and apologies. All right. Um, and I blame mainly my editing uh, uh, for making portraying me as a... A worse person than I am. Corrections and apologies. Oh, I am boy. a terrible person, but a couple things I listen back. And, you know, I don't often listen to our episodes. I just, I'm at the point now, there's so many of them, I just, like, put them out. I don't even, right. know, I don't even know what they are. Nobody cares. And so people text me, I don't know. But this one I listened to, and I was like, oh, oh, geez, no, I didn't mean to say, that's not how I. So there's some things. The first thing was when I used the term butt buddies. Uh <laughs> I don't use that. That's not a thing I say. Uh, and I edited out a whole thing. Big, long story. A big, long story about the term butt buddies. And there was a guy from high school that said that all the time. And that's why I used it. And I intro that into telling that story. And then you reminded me as I was editing that I've already told that story several times. And it's dumb and long. And yeah. So I cut that part out. But I left in me saying butt buddies. So I just sound like a person who says butt buddies all the time. And I don't. That's not a thing that I say. Okay. So. I don't want anyone to think that I'm uh, the kind of guy that would say that stuff, uh, say something like that regularly. I mean, maybe. Honey, this anyway. isn't the me- this isn't your Me Too moment. This is my Me Too moment. Oh, here's the other thing. Corrections and apologies. Another thing I said, I really sounded really misogynist, but it's because I was trying. Sometimes I say things just to kind of get it, like just for mm-hmm. a reaction out of you. Sometimes, right. like I'll just say something and just to hear you. It what rarely works. It ra- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. But this particular time, but I usually just say, oh, I'm just kidding or something mm-hmm. like that, which is probably stupid. I probably shouldn't say that anyway. But I, I said when we were talking about the, the Beach Boys, two girls for every boy, I was like, oh, I've always wanted that. That's, and you 
completely talked about something else, and I never got back to my joke. So just I just interjected that like I'm just like some guy who wants to have two women all the time, like I'm some huge misogynist, and I'm really not. So that's I just wanted to. Okay, do you feel let, better now? Let people know that I'm a one woman gal. Are you, are you feel better now? Guy, I'm a one woman guy. I do feel better. I just sometimes I listen. I'm like I'm not. That's not me. I could do do better. I say do better to myself. Okay. Do better, Joe. That's fair. Okay, no. so let's get on with the episode now. Like, I'm never going to get in Trump's cabinet. Did you hear what I, I said? Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying, I'll never make it in Trump's. Trump will never pick me for his cabinet if I don't do better. Right. So, okay, we're so we're in September of 1963. That's where we're going to jump in this episode. Yes. And you want me to just go ahead and start? I do. <laughs> okay. I think it's beyond time. Whoa, burn. Let me take a sip of this Modern Times beer, Hazy Mosaic by Orderville. Uh, and then I'll get right into September 1st, 1963. Okay, we got to wait for this. Ah, oh, refreshing. gross. That's not gross. It's refreshing. People swallowing is gross. It is? The sound. I don't think it is. All right. People like it. People. I, people Let's start. <laughs> All right, on September 1st, 1963, mm-hmm. troll dolls were invented. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were. Do you know the story about this? No. They were originally created in 1959 mm-hmm. by Danish fisherman and woodcutter Thomas Dam. <laughs> Dam could not afford a Christmas gift for his young daughter Lila, and Aww. so and so he carved the doll. So he from made his, the ugliest from, doll you could yeah, ever imagine. Yeah, he for made her. it. He made it from his imagination. And other children in the Danish town of Gjol. G-J-O-L, Gjol, they saw the troll doll, and they wanted one. So Dam started a company called Dam Things, Mm -hmm. and he started producing the dolls in plastic under the name Good Luck Trolls. The dolls became popular in several European countries during the early 1960s, shortly before they were introduced into the United States. They became one of United States' biggest toy fads from the autumn of 1963 to 1965. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. And they're still fucking around, and they got their own movie now. And they got a movie. This yeah. guy, I wonder. I hope this guy's family got paid. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the originals were of the highest quality, called Damn Dolls, and featuring sheep wool hair and glass now eyes. Now you start. Now you're starting to sound like Antiques Roadshow. I am. Yes, you're, now you're starting to sound like you're appraising an item. Well, their sudden popularity, along with the error in the copyright notice of Thomas Dam's original See? product, re- resulted in cheaper imitations so he never copyrighted oh no so i don't think he got anything for that movie some some asshole did assholes did yeah everyone's an asshole who doesn't make much money and then on september 9th 1963 Mm -hmm. you're gonna love this uh an 18 hour (laughs) and there was a concert on that day that lasted over 18 hours oh jesus christ shoot me in the head an 18 hour concert it better be. What is it? It's going to be something awful, too. Do you want to know why? Why? Uh, this was held at the Pocket Theater in Manhattan, mm-hmm. uh, and it was done by the Pocket Theater Piano Relay Team. Uh, Pocket they, Theater Piano Relay Team. Yes, they played a piece. <laughs> stupid. They played a piece called Vexations. Okay. okay. And it took them 18 hours to play it. Uh, this piece of music was written in the 1890s by eric sadie so how did they go to the bathroom they sh- or in their pants uh the I piece guess. the piece bears the inscription it, like in the in the music yes it's, it's written 
for some reason, they don't know why it says this, but it says in order to play the theme 840 times in succession, it would be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand and in the deepest silence by serious immobilities. It just says that in there. So people started to take that to mean that the piece should only be paid, should be played 840 times in a row if you're going to play it. Some jokester probably just wrote that in there. What? And so these people really thought that and that might not be what it even meant. Okay. Uh, Vexations appears to have had no performance history before the idea gained ground that the piece was required to be played 840 times. Because nobody gave a fuck about it until (laughs) then. I guess not. Made it a novelty. The the first of the marathon performances was this one produced by John Cage and Lewis Lloyd at the Pocket Theater. Oh, my God. A whole bunch of other people. Um, Howard Klein, the New York Times reviewer, who coincidentally was asked to play in the course of the event. He was asked to play part of mm-hmm. it. So that must be, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. You play for a little bit. Okay. Uh, and Joshua Rifkin, uh, he, those were two reserves. And this was September 9th. Uh, so Cage, who produced this thing, set the admission price at $5. And he had a time clock installed in the lobby of the theater. Mm-hmm. And each patron checked in with the clock. And when leaving the concert, they'd check out again. So and, you could tell how long they'd been there? Yeah, and they'd receive a refund of a nickel for each 20 minutes that they attended. It, oh, my God. So it's like that haunted house where if you make it through the whole thing, you get your money <laughs> you back? You get your money back, yeah. He said, in this way, uh, people will understand that the more art you consume, the less it should cost. Uh, but, oh, my God. But Cage underestimated the length of time the concert would take, didn't think it would last over 18 hours, and there's one person an actor with the Living Theater named mm-hmm. Carl Schenzer, who was present for the entire, the entire performance. Thing. Yeah, I bet he dreamt about that song for weeks. And then he went to go that. watch that sleep movie. Yeah, and then he went to, that's right. <laughs> after that. Uh, oh, my God, that guy. Yeah, this was... I bet uh, he's fun at a party. According to the 1971 edition of the Guinness Book of Records, mm-hmm. uh, at the conclusion of the concert, mm-hmm. one of the critics that was still there yelled, Encore. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. And then we moved to September 21st, 1963 with our first number one song on the friggin' Billboard charts, y'all, by Bobby Vinton. Are mm-hmm. you familiar with Bobby Vinton? I've heard of him, yeah. You know this song? Oh, yeah. Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet. Bobby Vinton didn't originate this song, though. I like this one, kind of. She wore blue. You ever seen a woman wear blue velvet? Probably. This was written and composed in 1950 by Bernie Wayne and Lee Morris. This was a top 20 hit for Tony Bennett in its original 1951 version. This is so, takes you back to the 1960s. Yeah. Like, just to listen to it, it makes makes you just really go... You just picture people wife-beating and smoking cigarettes. You've got such a dismal idea of the past i mean you, you don't have to look, look picture that you don't you don't have to no oh. some drunk dad. You picture teenagers at the soda shop and then women not being able to have jobs and then racism right yeah just uh, you know you you look at at it from a position of uh, white, per- white privilege all right this is not <laughs> this kind of podcast <laughs> sorry all right anyway um, Vinton, uh, he had a number three hit in the summer of 1963 mm-hmm. called Blue on Blue. Mm-hmm. So he decided to record an album of all songs with the word blue in it. 
In the title? In the title. Oh, my God. Uh, so kind of a dumb idea. Yeah. Uh, what I'm I'm gonna make a what I'm gonna have orange and all of my titles. So music publisher Al Gallico suggested Blue Velvet uh, him, he, that he should cover this Tony Bennett song, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, for his Blue album, and uh, so he sent his secretary with a dollar to the music store to purchase the song sheet music. An hour later, Vinton had recorded Blue Velvet in two takes. Kind of like Picasso's Blue Period. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. And Vinton didn't expect this to be a hit, but he thought, because he thought Am I Blue was going to be the big one on there. And oh, was, and it so. was Blue Velvet. I wonder what other blue song. I wonder if he had one called Blue Balls. <laughs> he probably did. What else is blue? Blue. Oh, blueberries. Blueberries. And then on September 24th, 1963, we had the debut of a new television show. Yes. Uh, about more hillbillies. Oh, uh, boy. Beverly Hillbillies was so popular. Yeah. So this one aired on CBS all the way until 1970. Uh, this series takes place at the Shady Rest Hotel, oh. which is run by the Green Kate, Acres? Kate Bradley, her three daughters, Billy Joe, Bobby Joe, and Betty Joe, and her uncle Joe Carson. Oh, no. Uh, this series is one of three interrelated shows about rural characters produced by Paul Henning. Uh, this was created on the, because of the success of Beverly Hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And this show, uh, Green Acres spun off of this show. Okay. What is this show? Do you, you don't want to guess? I don't know it. Yeah, I'll play the theme song, see if you know it. <laughs> you know this? I don't know if this is well known. Petticoat Junction? Petticoat Junction, yeah. Oh. Yeah, Petticoat Junction. Uh, yeah, I never watched that, so I missed that whole... Yeah, I never once... I don't know I that, that train. I've even heard of that one. Um, I don't know any of these people that are on it. Uh, Edgar Buchanan played Uncle Joe. Mm-hmm. Linda Henning. Henning was Betty Joe. B. Bennett Benedaret was Kate Bradley. Benedaret. Frank Cady was Sam Drucker. I've never heard of any of them. Yeah, I don't know any of the people. Anyway, Petticoat Junction premiered. Well, that's special. And uh, just a few days later. It's funny that there was a hillbilly fad in the 60s. It was, like the the westerns, the hillbillies. And then hillbillies. I never thought about that. Game shows. Why were the 60s hillbilly crazy? Well, just like anything. Anything successful, they make 100 copies of everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like when Cosby was big, then there was every stand-up comedian had a sitcom. Or when Happy Days was big, then you had all all these other 1950s things. Yeah, right. So everything's just, you just copy it. Yeah. Um, And then on September 29th, just a few days later, My Favorite Martian debuted. I never watched that either. Did you? I just, uh, just a few minutes ago, I just finished watching the pilot episode. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, Was it awesome? It was good. I did not know. You know, you always see that picture of the guy who's the Martian, mm-hmm. uh, Roy Walston, Ray mm-hmm. Walston. You know who that is? Yes. Yeah, he's because he's been a bunch of other stuff, that yeah. old guy. But he's always know, been an old guy. Yeah. And Never think, been a young guy. And I think he, wasn't he like the character from the Flintstones that there was a Martian that looked just like him? Oh, yeah. Remember that Martian yeah. for Gazoo or whatever yeah, it is? Yeah, that could be. I think it had something to do with that. Maybe not, but uh, I always thought it was the same guy. Yeah, you might be right. But I didn't know the young guy, so it's he's... He's 
Uncle, they call him Uncle Martin because he accidentally calls him a Martian. Mm-hmm. And the main guy who discovers the alien is Bill Bixby. Oh, is it? Did you know that? A young no. Bill Bixby. A young, very attractive Bill Bixby. And he like lives in this uh, mother-in-law house. Mm-hmm. This, and, and he rents it from these three women. And he's really hot for the young, hot one. Oh, okay. And uh, it's like the mom and the So that must sister. have been what made him famous. I guess it did. And he didn't even turn into the Hulk at all. Yeah. But a human-looking extraterrestrial in a one-man spaceship nearly collides at high altitude with U.S. Air Force's rocket plane. The North American X-15, the spaceship's pilot, is a 150-year-old anthropologist from Mars. Tim O'Hara, a young newspaper reporter, played by Bill Bixby, for the L.A. Sun, is on his way home from Edwards Air Force Base, where he had gone to report on the flight of the X-15. Returning home to L.A., O'Hara spots the same silver spaceship coming down quickly, after which it crash lands nearby. He ends up taking in the Martian and telling everybody it's his uncle uh, <laughs> and because they have to fix the spaceship. So it's basically the same thing as Alf, yeah. like, uh, except it's a guy. Um, but it's pretty it's pretty dumb. In the first episode, he like turns in, he can turn invisible. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when other people are around, he turns invisible so he can carry him and stuff. I don't know. It's, yeah, that's He, he mind so controls a dog. But I, I, so. so I... I think I'm going to start watching the rest of it. You like that? It's one? on YouTube. I'm shocked it's on YouTube. Anyway, they live above the garage and other stuff. Uh, and then October 1st, 1960, 1963. You almost said 1993. I don't know why I said that. I can't read. October 1st, 1963, um, we had the release of one of the Best Picture nominees starring Mr. Sidney Poitier. Was it uh, To Serve With Love? Nope. Uh, Lilies of the Field. Yes. Did you ever see this? Yeah. It's good. A traveling handyman becomes the answer to the prayers of nuns who wish to build a chapel, or as they say, a chapel, in the desert. Directed by Ralph Nelson. Sidney Poitier, Lilia Scala, and Lisa Mann are in this. Mm-hmm. I watched the trailer for this, and um, like an excessive amount of times in the trailer, they mention how... Big and strong and strapping. Uh, <laughs> really? How Sidney Poitier is, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the nuns are, are saying the nuns, that? No, the, the narrator is. Oh. The, the nuns are pleased by the big, strong man that came to them. <coughs> well, you know there's lots of symbolism going on in there. Yeah. Well, strong, sexy men. Uh, but the director, Ralph Nelson, had to put up his house as collateral. For this film. Oh, did he? Sidney Poitier gave up his usual salary and, and agreed to do the film for a smaller amount and a percentage of the profits. He won the Best Actor Oscar for his efforts. Good for him. How many times have you seen that movie? Once. Say, a long me, time ago. Give me some lines from it. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I can't even remember plots of movies I've seen. Right, give lines. me your best Sidney Poitier impression. I don't have one, honey. Man, you're not very I'm not, unlike you, I don't. Just dive into impressions, whether I'm terrible at them or not. That's uh, I I sensed in your tone. Mm-hmm. I I sensed some hurtfulness. You did. Yeah, I'm I sorry. And then on our, that same day that uh, that came out, mm-hmm. no, I'm sorry, five days later, October sixth, the 1963 World Series concluded. Okay. With the two-time defending champion New York Yankees. Uh, Getting defeated 
by being swept by the Los Angeles Dodgers, mm-hmm. who swept the series in, a, in four games to capture their second title in five years and their third in franchise history. Starting pitchers Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, and Johnny Padres, and ace reliever Ron Peranowski mm-hmm. combined to give up only four runs in four games. None of that makes sense to me. Those those were pitchers, and they didn't give a lot of runs. Like runs or scores are scores. Oh, points. okay. They're points. Okay. So if, so it doesn't make it any more interesting to know what it means, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> well, the other team only scored four times the whole series. Oh, okay. In four games. That's not ex- exciting to you? Mm, not really, no. Yeah, pitching duels are really boring to watch because mm-hmm. nobody's hitting the ball. I just watching a guy. Do you guys play catch? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, baseball, I've tried to like it. I've liked boring. it at times, but it's it's boring. boring. But it's calming. Anyway, uh, New York was held to a 171 team batting average, the lowest ever for the Yankees in the postseason. Don't know what that means. 171, you, don't have to, you know what, like an average. <laughs> you don't, we don't have to. You know, just, let's just move on. Not many people got hits. Okay. In that same day, uh, the uh, Best Picture film was released. And okay. The third highest growing, grossing movie mm-hmm. of the year, mm-hmm. Tom Jones. Oh, the musical? The, the movie, The Romantic and Chivalrous Adventures of Adapted, of, of yeah. The Romantic and Chivalrous Adventures of Adopted Bastard Tom Jones mm-hmm. in 18th century England. Yeah, it's a musical. Directed by Tony Richardson. There's Shirley Jones in it. Starring Albert Finney, Susanna York, and Georgia oh, George Susie. Devine. Susanna York. Yeah, she was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Welsh singer Tom Jones chose his professional stage name from the title character protagonist of this film. Oh, that's, that is whatever yeah. he got it from. Okay. Yep. Hugh Griffith was reportedly drunk enough. Uh, it was or, Hugh Griffith was reportedly drunk through much of the production. The scene in which his horse falls on him was not planned, and many believed he was saved by virtue of his inebriated condition. He, wait a minute. So he really was drunk. Yeah. The, oh wow. The actor was drunk, and they. That's funny. Said he, I don't know why being drunk would make him survive a horse falling on him, but um, maybe yeah. Uh, the film incorporated every frame of footage. Before rescuers entered the frame to save him. Oh, yeah. So I guess you have to watch that and watch a horse fall on it. It wasn't planned. Man. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't get killed. Yep. Because that'll hurt. You can A horse stepping on your foot breaks the bones in your foot. Uh, horses weigh a lot. Yeah, they do. And bones are brittle. Especially, Bone. especially mine, my old bones, my ancient bones. Bones are made to be broken. And then October 12th, 1963, we got another number one song. Okay. Uh, Blue Velvet is pushed off by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. Yeah. Yep. You know the song? Hold on. Yeah, Sugar Share. Yes. Jeez, you do know old song. I know. It was written in 1962 by Keith McCormack. Mm-hmm. He gave songwriting credit to his aunt, Faye Voss. Isn't that nice? After asking what those tight pants that girls wear, to which she replied, leotards. Uh, I don't. I don't get it. He must mention that in the song at some point. I don't know. 
The unusual and distinctive organ part was played by Norman Petty at his studio in Clovis, New Mexico. Yeah, he has a... It's a Hammond Solovox. That's so funny. So 60s. The original instrument can still be viewed on display at the Norman Petty Studios today. 60s love their organs. Every gra- Everybody's grandma had an organ. Yeah, my grandma had an organ for sure. Isn't that funny? Anyway, this ended up being Billboard's number one song of the year. Oh. I thought they had kids' organs. That was a big kids' toy. You get an organs. organ. Yeah. Yeah, organs were a big deal. You all right? Yeah. November 7th, 1963, the second highest grossing movie is released, and yeah. this was also nominated for Best Picture. It's a film called It's a Mad, 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 yes. Mad, Mad, Mad World. Yes. A group of motorists hear about a crook's hidden stash of loot and race against each other across the country to get to it. You know, I don't think I've ever watched this movie. I was just watching it a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. I have it on the YouTube TV and mm-hmm. recorded it. And I was watching the beginning of it. The the way they find out about the crook having the stash is he drives off of a cliff oh. and flies out of his car. And then the last words before he dies is like, oh, there's a bunch of money at this place. And then they That's a, those are crappy last words. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then he, he like kind of dies and then he wakes up again and he thinks this guy is his aunt. And he t- calls him Aunt, aunt Bell or something. So it's a so it's a comedy you're saying. It's kind of silly. It's kind of like Smokey and the Bandit or whatever, like a yeah, a mad race, mad dash for stuff. But it's an old school. Okay. But it looks like it's been pretty restored on the film, the TV version that was from Turner Classic Movies. I would watch it. I'm they, gonna watch. They it. do quality programming. They do quality programming. Uh, this has uh, Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman screaming yeah. at somebody the so whole it time. So it's just like Cannibal Run with all the stars. Yeah, with all those people, yeah. Uh, Jack Benny had a cameo, mm-hmm. uh, but it was originally offered to Stan Laurel from Laurel and Hardy. Oh. But Laurel turned it down uh, because when his best friend and partner, Oliver Hardy, died in 1957, mm-hmm. he pledged never to perform again. Oh. And so he kept that promise the rest of his life. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that something? They were butt buddies. I just did that whole apology. <laughs> I know. You're terrible. <laughs> nah, see, that's I was, I was setting it up for yes. that joke. Yeah, see? there you go. No, they were. Who, and it's okay if they were. It's a, there's who nothing knows? wrong with that. Who knows? Everybody was back then. I don't know about everybody, honey. No, I mean, I mean, butt buddies is what you call your friends then. I don't think that's true slap. either. Because everybody slept. They called grab ass. They play each other. No, but he did Anyway, that. this was the film debut of Jonathan Winters. Oh. He's a funny guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film was so crammed with action that each leading actor was given two scripts, one for the dialogue and one for the physical comedy. I bet. Don Rickles reportedly wanted to be in the movie, but he was never asked. Poor he, guy. He never let Stanley Kramer live it down either even heckling him about it from the stage whenever Kramer came to see one of Don Rickles' shows. <laughs> I want to be in that goddamn movie. Don Rickles, I think, was supposed to be really funny. Yeah. Well, he was very... Yeah, he was one of those guys. Remember, we yeah. we talked about that show he had that was like completely filled with racial slurs. Mm-hmm. And then on November 16th, 1963, Nino Tempo, 
and April Stevens take over the number one spot on the Billboard chart. You know who they are? No. They're brother and sister. They're from Niagara Falls, New York. I don't think I know this one. Deep Purple. Yeah, I don't think I've heard this. I'm going to fast forward. Because there's something this is known for. so cheesy so with her this is known for the her saying those speaking the words mm-hmm. uh, in the second half of the song while her brother sings yes uh because when the duo first recorded the song as a demo tempo forgot the words and stevens was speaking the lyrics to remind him the producers thought stevens spoken interlude was cute and should be included in the finished product but according to stevens her brother was not as easily convinced he didn't want anyone talking while he was singing. Oh. But they kept it in. But Don't you think it's weird that they're brother and sister and they're singing about love lovers? They are. In the still of the night, I want to hold you tight. Well, in the 60s. Brother and sisters did that? Yeah, brothers and sisters were butt buddies. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call something else? Front butt buddies? I, I, let's not. What do you call it when a, a brother and a sister do it with each other? I don't think there's a... It's called incest, I'm pretty sure. Are they pumping anything? No, we don't need to. Anyway, that's not... The flowers in the attic there. We'll, yes. get, we'll move on. Yep. And then that brings us to a date that we're just going to brush on mm-hmm. because we're going to do... We, we're going to announce right now, for yes. the first time, American Timelines exclusive. You hear, heard it here first, listeners. Next episode is going to be a special episode. Yes. We're going to just do a whole episode about JFK's assassination. That's right. Because that's where we are now in the timeline. But uh, It would fill up a whole episode. We have so many things about it. We'll never get through the year if we just start on this because there's so many things. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have so many things I want to talk about about it. There's so many different things, but we're going to skip it. So that happened November. Well, first, I'll I'll just say this one part. November 21st was the day before he, Mm -hmm. he was assassinated. Uh, did you know JFK was a huge James Bond fan? No. James Bond fan? I can't ever say that. He he uh, viewed an early print of From Russia with Love at the White House mm-hmm. on November 21st, 1963. It would be the last film that he ever saw because he was oh, going to be killed wow. the next day. Okay. Yeah, so everybody knows exactly what he saw because of that. So November 22nd was the day of infamy mm-hmm. uh, that it happened. Dallas, the Zabruder film, all that stuff. We're going to cover that next episode. That's right. We, Amy's got a bunch of conspiracy theories. Amy actually has, she's going to claim that she's she actually knows where JFK really is and that it was all a hoax. Yeah. And things like that. Him and Elvis. Yep. And then we're going to we're gonna um, describe shot by shot the Oliver Stone film. Uh, yeah, we're going to describe that. The Oliver Stone podcast. film. Yeah, I thought JFK. you were going to say the Zabruder film, and then you say the Oliver. No, Stone the Oliver film. Stone film, the three-hour one. It's like four yes. VHS tapes. Ridiculous. We'll talk about that. So for now, I'm just going to jump past that, and we'll retouch it on next episode. And we'll jump right to 
November 22nd, 1963, mm-hmm. um, a new number one song by Dale and Grace. Okay. Do you know who they are? I don't. I'm leaving it all up to you. Oh, it's like country. This became a number one hit in the U.S. for two weeks. This is the first time a duet succeeded another duet at the top. Of the oh, charts. that's right, because of the brother yeah. and sister. Um, this is on the easy listening chart also. This was the number one song when JFK died. Dale and Grace were in Dallas on the day of the assassination, and they were scheduled to perform that night as part of Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars. Oh, they were. Bobby Rydell, Jimmy Clanton, and Brian Hyland. And moments before the assassination had waved to the president's motorcade from a vantage point near their hotel. Oh, my goodness. It's all related. Yeah, these guys may have done it. These guys may have have been. They might have done that. Dale and... Who Ginger Dale and Grace may have killed uh, Dale Houston mm-hmm. uh, and Grace Broussard are their names. Um, don't know them. That's never yeah, heard don't it. Know. Don't know them. They reunited several times after that, but they only had a couple hits. Okay. And then that was the the next day is when JFK was pronounced dead. But we'll mm-hmm. get into that in the next one. Um, and then on December 5th, mm-hmm. 1963, have you ever heard of the movie Charade? Yeah. Is it, um, is it Cary Grant, maybe? Yes. And Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Um, also featuring Walter Matthau, James Coburn, George Kennedy, and some other people. Yes. Uh, it's, it's like a suspense thriller, romance, comedy. Uh, it's really known for the the rapport between Grant and Hepburn mm-hmm. and uh, filmed on location in Paris. But the movie entered the public domain immediately upon release because Universal Pictures published it with an invalid copyright notice. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. It's in the public domain. You can play it anywhere you want. Charade. Yep. Well, let's do it. This was re- this let's, movie. Let's was, blast it on the lawn, babe. We should. This was referred to as the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made. I don't know why they said that. Yeah, I don't know why they said that either. Is it seems like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And then on December 7th, 1963, we have another number one song, mm-hmm. and by far the worst one of the year, and the last one of the year. Okay. It's a French song. Oh, I know this one. This, like, this song was in a nun movie. This is performed by the singing nun. Oh, yeah. Song songs called Dominique. The yeah. singing nun is the... À l'époque où Jean Santerre d'Angleterre était le roi Dominique, notre père, combattit yeah, play les this amis joies This is about Saint Dominic, a Spanish-born priest and founder of the Domin- Dominican Order. En tout chemin, en tout lieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu Il ne parle que du bon Dieu Certain jour, un hérétique Okay, I'm going to turn this off because I can't stand it. <laughs> uh, that was terrible. Uh, the gal who uh, uh, this was performed by Janine Deckers okay. of Belgium, better known as Sourire. Boy, that was good. The singing nun. That's French for singing nun. Okay. Uh, so she's known as the singing nun. Um, 
This was a top-selling record in 11 countries in the late 1963 and early 64, but Decker's never again reached the same success and continue, but continued to lead a colorful but tragic life. Mm. She and her companion of 10 years, mm-hmm. An- Annie Pesher, mm-hmm. both committed suicide in 1985 as a result of financial and tax problems stemming from the recording of this song. Oh, my God. Well, that's quite a morbid ending to that song. Yeah. Do you want me to play it again? No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, because I thought if I play it again, but I think I feel like that wasn't the singing nun in the airplane probably a parody of this yeah, movie. Yeah, probably. I wonder if she sang that song. I know it's been in movies with nuns. Okay, that brings us to December eighth. Yes, when Grindle was on. What Grindle? Probably Grindle. A show, a show called Grindle, G R I N D L, an employee of a. Foster Temporary Service and her boss, Anson Foster, accepts, and her boss, accept a variety of jobs for his employees. Mm-hmm. Grindle works at everything from babysitting to theater ticket taker, but Sounds typically like a German sitcom. finds a unique way to accomplish her task. She's a, It's a woman and her name's a, Grindle? Her name is a woman named Grindle. That sounds like a German sitcom. It was on NBC. Okay. So I'm going to discuss the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Oh my gosh, I don't think I knew that Frank Sinatra even yep. was kidnapped. Not his not Frank Sinatra. Oh. Frank Sinatra Jr., his son. Oh, so Frank Sinatra, the guy we know was uh, the guy who says Old I blue got eyes. chunks of guys like you in my stool. Yep. Isn't he's not a junior. No, he's not. He's senior. So his son was kidnapped That's from right. him. That's right. Oh. So um Let's hear this story. I don't. I never knew this happened. So okay. So for several weeks before yeah. December eighth, right? Two twenty-three-year-old former high school classmates from Los Angeles named Barry Keenan and Joe Ansler. Oh, two fellas, huh? Mm-hmm. They had been following Not co-eds. Um, Nineteen-year-old Frank Sinatra Jr. for several weeks from city to city. They've been just following him, like because mm-hmm. they're big, fa- oh, like stalking Frank, him. Oh, Frank Sinatra Jr. Right. So they weren't like following his concerts and listening. No, to the they, were they were stalking him. They were trying. They were planning on kidnapping him. Oh, jeez. Um, they wanted to snatch him and demand a ransom from his wealthy father. You said snatch. I did. So they decided December eighth, nineteen sixty three, was when they were going to strike. Oh, the, instead, so they decided instead of watching my favorite Martian, uh, uh, the episode where Uncle Martin falls under suspicion of being a notorious jewel thief. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, but they, but Martin and Tim set a trap for the thief, employing good old Martian know-how. Mm-hmm. They decided instead of that, watching that episode, yes, that they were gonna kidnap kidnap someone Frank instead. Frank Sinatra Jr. This was days after the assassination of JFK. Oh yeah, which we we're gonna cover in our yes. next episode. That's right, our special episode. So um, at that night. Frank Sinatra Jr. was performing at Harris Club Lodge in Lake Tahoe. Okay, so he did. He was a performer. He, he was, was also a performer. A singer. He wasn't just. That's true. He, yes. He wasn't That's why ju- they were following from city to city because gotcha. he was performing. So they were like going to his show. So I thought maybe he was just like a little kid that they were. No, following he was him, nineteen. He was an adult, a nineteen-year-old. Mm-hmm. He was his footsteps. Yes. And so, did he ever make any good songs? Like, is he famous so. for anything? I don't like, think. I don't so. think I knew there was a Frank Sinatra. Jr. So there that night there was this a full-blown blizzard going on. In, in Lake Tahoe. This is on the border of California and Nevada. Oh, a, a blizzard. Yeah. Really? There? Mm-hmm. That far south? Yes. You know, I'm, I'm picturing, I shouldn't be picturing this, but I'm picturing Frank Stallone. It's not, I don't think it's Because, you know, whenever it's a, a celebrity, mm-hmm. 
relative that's not famous mm-hmm. or not You think successful. of Frank Stallone? Yeah, I think of Frank Stallone. So there's a knock at the door of in of room 417. Knock, knock, knock. That's my uh, sound effect. Inside was Frank Sinatra Jr. and John Foss, who was a trumpet player in the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. They were oh. inside eating dinner. They were having dinner together as yes. buddies? Yep. Were and it was 9.30 p.m. That's unknown, honey. We don't know. That's okay. their beeswax. Oh, it's none of our business. That's true. It was 9.30 p.m. All right. And they were relaxing. It was They were going to perform at 10, so they were just chilling oh, out. Oh, a little pre-show meal, yes. if you will. Um, suddenly. Uh-oh, something suddenly happened. The gunmen come in with parkas on. Gunmen come in. They, those guys, those, those two stalkers, guys. Are, they're gunmen. Yeah. They come in with parkas. But what? they're pretending to be room service waiters. Oh, so their guns to, aren't to, blaring. When, they're, when they knock at the door, they pretend they're room service. Oh, and when they service? open the door, they burst in and they okay. start demanding money. I was going to say, like, well, how many room service people wear parkas? Parkas, that's true. So they bound and gagged Foss. Okay. Then they blindfolded Sinatra, threw an overcoat over his shoulders, and forced him out into the snowdrifts towards a Chevrolet Impala. Oh, it's cold out there. And, and you know, people are known to scream and holla about Chevy Impalas. Yep. So hopefully nobody was screaming because they were trying to get away. That's right. So before leaving, one of them yeah? ripped the telephone line from the wall and said to Foss, keep your trap shut for 10 minutes or we'll kill your friend. If we don't make it to Sacramento, your pal is dead. Oh, I'm glad they used that old uh, school gangster voice. Yeah, uh, I know. They, from yeah. gangster movies in the 30s. That's right. Okay. That's what they did. Fashy. So they drive off, and less than 15 minutes later, Foss work gets gets out of his bonds and he, he calls... The, untied. Mm-hmm, and he calls the band's manager, Tino Barzi. Wait, how did he call if the phone's ripped out of the wall? I don't know. He alerted. It says he alerted, oh, he the, alerted. the band's manager. So, so maybe he the must manager was down, down the hall. Down the hall. Yeah. Oh, he was. He was next door. Sorry. Oh, he was next door. So, so yeah, he goes so, next door. I'm glad. I'm glad my sleuth skills have helped you. That's right. Tell the correct story. So they call the police. Officers from Zephyr Cove substation five miles away arrive. They said the guy told him not to call the police. That's but they did. But they did it anyway. Yes. So they the officers arrive. Okay, officers are there. And since kidnapping is a federal offense, oh. FBI agents from Reno quickly. S- swarm into the it's just area. as serious as tampering with mail yes if you poop in a mailbox a public mailbox it's just as serious and as you know this. that from experience i d- i never <laughs> said that all right maybe so I um maybe i don't for the listeners to figure out frank frank sinatra senior had been oh. at home in palm springs i got chunks of guys like you in my stool all right that's not going to get old that's my impression i know it is so that's um, Phil Hartman's impression. It That's is. my impression of Phil, Phil Hartman's, Hartman's impression. impression. Rest in peace. So the, he, um, they meet with him. Okay. And they assume the motive is money. Yep. Um, so let me guess. Frank says, let him kill him. I don't care. No, he they didn't. do it. No, he was mad. Oh, he was mad. So the FBI recommend that Sinatra wait for a ransom demand, pay it, and then allow the Bureau to track the money and, and find the back. kidnappers. Okay. Because, you know, Frank... Frank's connected, right? right, to the mafia and stuff. That's wasn't what. That's he? the. That's the rumor. Yeah, but he was loaded too. Yeah, of course. You know. he had so much money. So meanwhile, um, the next day. Yeah, why would you go after this guy? Why would you go after Frank Sinatra? I know because he know he's like all these mob connections. Everybody and knows he's got the mob connections. You're done. Yeah. So meanwhile, the next evening. Yep. 
Keenan, one of the guys, Barry Keenan. Barry Keenan. Keenan's his last name. Not Keenan. Not to be confused with Keenan Ivory Wayne. Right. He calls a third conspirator named John Irwin. Oh, there's another guy. He won who was going to be the ransom contact. Oh, okay. That's smart. Have a third person be the contact. Mm-hmm. That's always the way to do it. So then Irwin calls Sinatra and tells him to await the kidnappers' instructions. So. Um, the snowstorm had shut down the South Lake Tahoe Airport. Okay. So he flew to Reno, where he was met by William Raggio, the DA of who, Washoe who County. Fl- who flew to Reno? Frank, Frank Sinatra. Okay. Where he met with the DA the of DA Washoe, of Washoe County. County. This okay. it's so funny because it's Reno and Washoe County, and it all makes me think of Reno nine one one. That's a great show. It may, you know, it makes me Dingle. think. Of, it makes me think of those guys are yeah involved in this. dealing with this. Um, so they they return to Reno. They try to go. Um, they they try to drive over these icy storm swept Spooner Summit, which was an area there they couldn't. So they returned to Reno, where they set up headquarters in a three room suite at the Mapes Hotel. Offers to help came in: airplanes, helicopters, mounted horsemen, all over the world. People so were everyone heard about everybody Frank heard about Junior being kidnapped. Yes. Yeah, so there's all these telephone calls. Um, Attorney General Robert Kennedy came, um, called, and, okay. and this was right after JFK was killed. Ah, but my he brother called just and, died, but I'll help you, see? Yeah, he, he called. He promised or, uh, federal help. Um, so it became a two-state manhunt, and it utilized nearly 100 California and Nevada sheriff's deputies and 26 FBI agents. Oh, my gosh, that's a lot of personnel. And they looked everywhere. They left no stone unturned. Oh, good thing they turned over all those stones. The police were able to trace the car's tire chain tracks through six inches of fresh snow. So it was kind of a good thing that the snow had fallen. How do they know what car they were, they were Well, they know. They I don't out. know. They okay. figured it out. Um, so the abductors were heading east toward Carson City, Nevada, not west, or is what they originally had thought. Oh. Roadblocks were thrown up every, in, on every highway in the region, but no suspects were apprehended. Hmm. The criminals somehow managed to slip through the net despite all of this. I was going to say, if there's that much snow, just anybody on the road is pretty much a suspect. Right. So on Monday, December 9th... Oh, you mean the same night that The Outer Limits was on, which was kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock Presents type show? And this this specific show was called It Crawled Out of the Woodwork, about an energy being that was accidentally created... Uh, overrunning an experimental power station and and this giant ball of energy takes over kills people and then turns them into zombies that kill other people oh wow yeah you would probably like i probably would have liked that show um yeah so on that night sinatra receives the first of seven phone calls from the abductors okay seven phone calls let's do them so call number one so he he used an um an abasement exit at the mapes hotel to elude reporters because there's this big group out front Mm mm-hmm and he jumps so in the Frank, car. Frank goes out the basement. And he speeds off towards Ron's gas station, 30 miles south of Reno, because that's where they told him to go. The, 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 the abductors. abductors did. So go to Ron's yes. gas station. So then another call at that gas station sends him to a different gas station so for like more the, details. So these are pay phone yes. calls. So yes. he's just waiting by a pay phone, like a classic movie. Yeah. Thing. I wonder so, if there's a movie about this. So then he went, they, they told him to go to a different gas station All for right. more details. Another gas station, not Ron's. Deb, is it Deb's gas station? It could have been. could have been Deb. Um, so that night he flew to to Southern California then to await for further instructions. The cool kids call that SoCal. So um, the abductors were 
meanwhile, jazzed up on some Percodan and some Coca-Cola and no sleep for two days. Yeah, you can't sleep when you're abducted somebody. You got to stay awake, man. So Keenan decides he's going to drive back to Lake Tahoe in the rented Impala that they had. With the... Suspect yes, with, the, uh, with Frank Sandra Jr. Kidna- uh, the kidnappy. Yep. And he straps skis on the roof for a winter tourist effect for his ah, car. Ah, that way they all just, oh, they're just a tourist. Uh, and, and I wonder if Stockholm Syndrome is setting in yet. I don't know if it ever does. Where Frank's starting situation. to like, like his captors. On, so then on December 10th. Oh, you mean December 10th, the same day that on Petticoat Junction that we talked about earlier, yes. Uncle Joe has come up with another scheme to attract guests to the hotel. Uh, this scheme involves advertising it as a wedding honeymoon destination, and the special wedding honeymoon package would include, among other things, Uncle Joe actually officiating the wedding ceremony shirtless. That's not what happened. He is officiating it. Though. Yes, but he's not shirtless. He might be shirtless. Yeah, that would be. That would actually make it more entertaining. Yeah, probably. shirtless wedding, baby. So uh, Keenan passed along the demand for $240,000 in ransom. That's, That's not how, a lot. But back then. Back then it was a lot. Yeah. Uh, so Sinatra like gets the money together, man. gives it to the FBI, who okay. photograph all of it. Then they make the drop. Aha. And... Uh, Per his instructions, between two school buses in Sepulveda, California. Sepulveda. Sepulveda. Do you know that? That's Sepulveda, yes. Oh, okay. California. uh, I think my brother used to live there. During the early morning hours of December 11th is when that happened. Okay. They dropped it between on December 11th, which I didn't uh, look up because you didn't give me that date, but that's uh, between two school buses on Sepulveda. So while Keenan and Amsler picked up the money, they had left Irwin with... Frank Sinatra Jr. Yeah. Irwin. In an undisclosed location? Yes. But he starts getting nervous. Oh. And he starts falling in love with Sinatra Jr. Well, he decides to let him go. Well, they got the money, so let him go. No, they had just left to go get the money. Oh. So he decides he's just going to let him go because he gets nervous. He doesn't want to do this. So he lets him go. There's always somebody who ruins a plot. He lets him go. He lets him go. Uh, then a little bit later, Sinatra Jr. was found in Bel Air. He had walked a few miles along, uh, and um, he alerted a security guard that he saw. Do you think there's any chance he got in a cab and shouted to the cabbie, Yo, Holmes, the Bel Air? No, I don't think that happened. And was there Uncle Phil involved? Then um, they, the security guard hears the story yeah. and realizes who he is. Yeah, and you're Frank Sinatra Jr. And oh had heard about it. Everybody knows about this. Yeah, and so he, to avoid the press... He puts Frank Sinatra Jr. in the trunk of the patrol car so that nobody can see that he's in the car. I don't know why he didn't just lay down in the back seat. (laughs) That seems a little extreme. I know. So he takes him to his mother Nancy's house. Nancy Sinatra. Everybody knows Nancy Sinatra. Well, that was Nancy Sinatra. I think her. they they named the daughter Nancy, too, I think. Nancy Sinatra that sings, These Boots Are Made for Walking, is Frank Sinatra's daughter. daughter. These boots are made for walking. Is that right? I think. Yep. She was born in 1940. She's an American singer and actress. She's the elder daughter of Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra. Yes, you're right. So that's weird that that they named it. It was like a junior, yeah. but a woman. That you don't ever hear about. That. You don't ever hear Nancy that. Barbato Sinatra. Okay, so. She's dead. Um, they take him to. Okay, so. Anyway. 
so the um, young Sinatra describes what he knew to the FBI agents. Okay. But he had barely seen two of the kidnappers and only heard the voice of the third conspirator. Uh, yeah, even John Irwin, the guy who let him yeah. go, he only heard him because yeah. he was blindfolded, blindfolded still. and stuff. Uh, so, but even with just that, the Bureau was able to track the clues back to the house where Sinatra had been held in Canoga Park. Really? And just they, in the stuff he said, huh? And Because he knew where he had come from. And they gathered even more evidence. There wasn't anybody there, but they gathered even more evidence at that house. Okay. Gathering evidence. So meanwhile, with the FBI's progress being recounted in the press, the criminals were getting nervous. They started to feel the noose tightening. Oh, they were... They, okay. They can, feel, they can tell it's, they're closing in on Yes. Them. And so Irwin, of course, just broke first. He tells his brother... About what happened. Oh, that, no. That he was involved. Is it his, Does he tell his brother Tim Irwin, former tackle of the Minnesota Vikings? Or Steve Irwin, the guy that got killed by a stingray? I might. Good I might. All right. Um, stingray killed me, might. And then, so the brother then calls the FBI office in San Diego. You think Steve Irwin ever, how, how did that stingray kill him? Was he in the water and he put him? his wiener in it? No. Isn't that what <laughs> no, happened? No, I don't think But so. didn't he do all kinds of, all kinds of yeah, dead animals did. and then a stingray got him in the end? Yep. I think it shoved its tail in his heart or something. And I think his daughter now is like a same an animal, crazy um, crazy animal person. Animal fuck with her isn't that what they're called? Somebody yes. just fucks with animals. Yep, I think so. So right. then, anyway. um, hours later, Keenan and Amsler were captured. Okay, and yeah. nearly all the ransom was recovered. And they were captured because of John Irwin telling his yes. brother. You think? Yeah, because he he told everything. And did he get a lighter sentence because he ran well, on the now, other two guys? Just, maybe. Will you just wait? Mm, no. So the defense tried to argue that Frank Sinatra Jr. had engineered the kidnapping as a publicity stunt. Oh, that's a smart defense. But the FBI had, all their evidence was to the contrary of that. Okay. I guess it's not so smart. And the clincher that the prosecution had was a confession letter written earlier by Keenan and left in a safe deposit box. Okay. In the end, Keenan, Amsler, and Irwin were all convicted. Keenan was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He got out only after only four and a half years. Really? For yeah. good behavior? Yeah. By 1983, after life-threatening encounters with pills and booze, he had, made, he had made millions in real estate. So he had, like, all this problems with alcohol and drugs, but then he went and got into real estate and made millions of dollars. While he was in jail? No, after. He got out. After. This so was the in the guy who kidnapped him became, out of, became a millionaire later? Yeah. Yep. Because of hard work. Yeah. Dedication. Yeah. So... Maybe he learned the lesson that, hey, kidnapping somebody and doing crime for a Maybe. quick fix doesn't work. I'm going to, I promise if I get out, I'm going to work hard for my money. Yep, and he it did. Be. It. So As of 1998, he was living in Texas with a farm in Mississippi and an apartment in Los Angeles. We should interview him. We could. Maybe we, that would be interesting. American Timeline's first interview. So as for Sinatra Jr., yeah, he was haunted by false rumors that he rigged his own kidnapping. Oh. He rarely, if ever, talked about it. Yeah. Um, he did get, uh, well, you don't believe that's what happened. Do no, you? I don't think he had, there was a profile done from the Washington post in 2006. Yeah. And, um, he did the, we, the reporter uh, said that he was a man imbued with and haunted by the spirit of his ultra famous father. Oh. And in that article, he said, I was never a success, never had a hit movie or hit TV show or hit record. I just had visions of doing the best quality of music. Now there's a place for me because Frank Sinatra is dead. They want me to play the music. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be noticed. The only satisfaction is I do what I do well. That's the only lawful satisfaction. 
and that. Yeah, that's old. I know. Fall of himself. Doesn't sound like. That, does he really, or is he just? Well, not he must good? make a good impression of his dad singing. Oh, he the does. Songs. Aught six. Aught six is what yeah. we say. You said two thousand six. I like to say aught six. Oh, okay. Well, I'll take that's noted. But um, would you want to see, like, say there was a? Is he still alive, Frank Sinatra Jr.? I think so. Oops. Um, so he. You want to look it up real quick? Yeah, I can. Because um, he. Uh, do you think? Would you go see a movie about this? A movie. No, uh, like a musical starring Frank Sinatra Jr.? I think it depends on the musical. I mean, if it was like Cats. Oh, no, he died. Oh, when did he die? Frank Sinatra, Ju- Frank Sinatra Jr. died in March of 2016. Okay. He was murdered. No, he was not. By, oh, death, let's see. Oh, cardiac arrest. He was murdered by cardiac arrest in Daytona Beach, Florida at the age of 72. Never mind. I was gonna say. Do you think he had a kid, Frank Sinatra the third? I'm just thinking if we wanna, if we wanna start a tour. I wish I could anticipate your little questions that you have, <laughs> because a lot of times you have questions that I Random, didn't anticipate you have, and then I don't know. Okay, here's a question: Did Frank Sinatra Jr. ever undergo surgery for prostate cancer? <laughs> Probably. He did. January 2006. Boom. So I got this information from Wikipedia, okay. History.com, FBI.gov, the Tahoe Weekly, Washington Post, and allthatsinteresting.com. Great. So you didn't just write this yourself and do the research. You got it from those places. So you're Put saying together. that you're just putting it out there that you're not just stealing someone else's right. work. Right. That's right. Okay. Credit or credit is due. Credit duly noted. Credit noted. And therefore, also, I would just like to make the statement that if there's any other things we've talked about in our previous 76 episodes that we didn't <laughs> credit, credit done. Credit now. noted. <laughs> credit noted now. Uh, we officially credit everything we've said to someone else. Okay? That's right. We don't take credit for anything we've said except when I repeatedly refer to two dudes together as butt buddies. Uh, that That's all you. But that's all me. But that's not me. No, that's, that's that guy we went to school with. I was inspired by a guy from school. Um, All right, we're not going to. And it just sounds funny. That's a lot why about I that. say it. I know it did. I, and I'm not, you know, I would never try to disparage anyone for what they do. Okay, what's next? In the bedroom. It's just. So a, that was the story of Frank Sinatra funny. Jr. I don't know if it was good or not. Yeah, I think it was interesting. There was no rape in it, so that might have helped. That yeah, good. no rape gets bonus points for me. Yeah, that, no rape bonus. This is a rape-free episode. And now, uh, let me just, let's finish out the year. Um December 15th, 1963, a brutal rape occurred. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, uh, uh, no, a movie. On December 15th, 1963, a movie was released called America, America. Have you ever heard of this? No. This is, it must have been, this one I think was nominated for Best Picture is why I have it. But Ilya Kazan. Oh, yeah. A young Anatolian Greek entrusted with his family's fortune loses it en route to Istanbul and dreams of going to the United States. That sounds awful. Starring Stathis Gialelis, Frank Wolf, like a name you made up. Elena Karam. Of all the films he had directed, this one was Eli Kazan's favorite film as it was very personal to him. <laughs> Wasn't he the one that uh, ratted out a bunch of people that said they were communists? I think he was... Yeah, there was something Wasn't he, he the guy did that, did that, that was... Uh, or something he gave he did a bunch of names to McCarthy. Yeah, I think that I was think, him. Yeah, I remember he was like blackballed for a long time. And I think it was because of that. 
Until his death, Kazan remained controversial in some circles for testimony he gave before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Yeah. In 1952, a period that many, such as journalist Mike Mills, feels was, feel was the most controversial period in Hollywood history. He was in his mid-20s during the Depression years, 34 to 36. He had been a member of the American Communist Party in New York for a year and a half. Uh, in April 52, the committee called on Kazan under oath to identify communists from that period 16 years earlier. He initially refused to provide names, but eventually named eight former group theater members who he said had were communists. Yep, so, so you're right. Yep. Yeah. You're a genius, and you're beautiful. Oh, well, thanks, babe. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. All and right. I, I mean that. What's and next? Christmas of 1963. Oh, I got some toys. I have some toys, too. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I'll just... Go ahead. I don't have descriptions or anything, but Mousetrap, the game Mousetrap. Oh, that was a great one. Alan Sherwood, Barbie and Ken's friend, Alan Sherwood. (laughs) I'd never heard of that. Yeah, there was a doll. Barb and Ken had a a, a buddy. Barbie and Ken. (laughs) You called her Barb. Barb and Ken. Barbie and Ken had, they made an Alan Sherwood doll. And for some reason, he had a last name. name. Yeah. and troll dolls, like I talked about earlier, and then the Easy Bake Oven. Came out. That's right. Yep. And then Big Lou. What's Big Lou? Big L-O-O. I think it was a bathroom. Like a toilet? No, it was not. Isn't it? I doubt it. Let's see. Should I Google it? Oh, wait. No, I know what it is. It's a moon robot. The Big Lou? This moon robot is over three feet tall and says ten different things. One of his arms fires plastic balls and the other arm oh. picks things up. Hold his on. base launches rockets and he has a compass while his chest shoots darts and squirts water. He has lighted eyes that blink. <laughs> you said compass. Well, listen real quick. That's an assault weapon. Oh, yeah, but it's, it's real cheesy looking. I know it is. Of these eerie laboratories from the wild imagination of it's Big Lou, Giant Moon Robot by Marx. Robot. Robot. Make him work for you, fight for you, even talk to you with ten complete phrases. You Whatever the hell he said. You can make him fight with all kinds of weapons. You wind his head to make him talk. Yeah, these are like no, missiles out of his boobs. Arm. His nipples are rockets. Can anything stop him? <laughs> no. Big Lou has all the tricks. He squirts water out of his chest. The kid blow, you blow on the back of his head to blow his whistle. To work for you. Oh my God. You. Even talk to you. Get the giant moon robot. Bargain price. Robot. I love it. By Max. So. Why did they say robot? So robot. In the 60s. Is a term that used to be, apparently, you used to say it as robot. Because we yeah. watched an old Spider Man cartoon yep. where he says, robot, get that robot. Yep. I wonder when robot became, became robot. robot. So still in the 60s, it was robot. Isn't that funny? And this thing they're showing this kid playing with it, it's yeah. like this robot <laughs> is like four feet, almost four, like three and a half feet tall. Probably. Oh, it's that big. It's huge. It's like, yeah, it's like almost as tall as the kid. And it's real clunky looking, but of course it's the, the 60s. 60s. There was also Bozo the Clown talking doll, which looks like a total nightmare. He wears a blue and white polka dot suit and he has rooted bright red hair. Pull his chatty oh. ring to hear a number of phrases. No way. That's Scary. creepy. There was a Casper the Ghost talking doll. I guess they were really into the talking things. Yes. But this one, they sh- to make that one talk, it was real cheesy. He was winding something and making him talk. There was a dog named Lady Gaylord. Oh. And this was a pl- plastic pole toy. 
It looked, you've seen it before. It looked like that Fisher Price pull toy dog. What's it called? Lady Gaylord. Remember that, remember that, wasn't that telephone that Fisher Price made was also a dog? It was like, uh, you know what I mean? No. I don't know a dog telephone. Let's see, Lady Gaylord doll. Dog. Oh. Oh, yeah, everybody had that, I think. Then there was Little Miss Echo. Can you imagine anything more fun than a doll that repeats everything you say to her? Yes. She has a magnetic tape recorder built right in. Oh, gross. Um, there was a spy detective game, Tiny Chatty Babies. That's probably enough. And last one, Vacuform. Have hours of fun and entertainment by making plastic models of many small objects. Make planes, boats, cars, signs, decorations, comic buttons, and your own molds. Of course, it would probably got so hot that it yeah, it's one of those injured like wood. people. Yeah, if you look at the the tools that the, the the box it comes in, it's like all kinds of electrical stuff that kids <laughs> shouldn't be playing. That's with. right. And I don't know if we mentioned this on here, but I we had when I was growing up, we had a wood burning kit. Yes, my mom had like one. It was a game that was just a bird. We had it, and we were left unattended with a complete. Oh my god! We could just burn wood. But that it got hot. It oh, you were burning. You yeah. were burning wood. <laughs> In our house, we just were allowed to just burn wood. It's a wonder we didn't you burn use the it on house the coffee down. table or something. I, no, yeah, I mean, it came with wood that you would burn, like you'd burn oh, birds you would, into yeah. it, like a wood burning kit, and it always smelled terrible, like it was. Cut yeah, my mom fire. had one, and we just were left to. I don't just, know why my mom had one. Yeah, we. I don't know why we had in one. the seventies. That's crazy. And that's those are some toys. Those are some toys, and then there, I think I got one more thing. Okay. Uh, on December 29th, 1963, yeah. the 1963 National Football League Championship game was the 31st annual championship game uh, played at Wrigley Field in Chicago, Illinois. Football? Football. At Wrigley Field? Yes. A lot of people don't know this, but Wrigley Field still, I think to this day, mm-hmm. holds the record for most NFL games played. What? Or most football, professional football games played oh. in any stadium. I didn't know that. Because they played a bunch of games there. The, the Chicago, the St. Louis, no, the Chicago. Bears? No. The Chicago used to have two teams. Oh. The Chicago Bears and the Chicago Browns, I think it was. Uh, anyway, I have that in here. This game, anyway, this game was between the New York Giants mm-hmm. of the Eastern Conference against the Chicago Bears of the Western Conference. Okay. Um this wasn't the NFL. This wasn't the Super Bowl yet. No, they haven't right. invented that yet. But originally, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle asked the Bears owner, Coach George mm-hmm. Hallis, to move the game to Soldier Field mm-hmm. for its higher seating capacity and lights, as the game could extend into multiple overtime periods. Wrigley Field didn't have lights until 25 years later in 1988. Soldier Field was the home field of the Chicago Cardinals. In 1959. Oh, that was another football. Not the Chicago Browns. I don't think there was a Chicago Browns. I don't know why I said that. The Chicago Cardinals in 1959. Soldier Field was the home field of the Chicago Cardinals in 1959 and became the home of the Bears not until 1971. Oh. So, did you know the Cardinals were originally in Chicago? No, I didn't know I didn't either. either. Uh, maybe I did. No, I didn't. When Hallis refused, Roselle moved the game's starting time up an hour to 12.05 p.m. Central Time for increased daylight, similar to 1960 at Franklin Field. The championship game was played in temperatures under 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, God. 
Anybody go see it? Although the young, oh yeah, I'm sure people did. Although the young AFL was completing its fourth season, the NFL still regarded itself as the premier professional league of American football. Okay. As ref- reflected in WGN radio broadcaster Jack Quinlan's comments as the clock ticked to zero on the final play. The Chicago Bears are world's champion of professional football. It was another 22 years before the Bears won another league championship. 14 to 10 was the score. The AFL game didn't happen until January because of football being on hiatus due to Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is the end of 1963. We finished another year. We put it in the books. With a little asterisk. Yes, a little asterisk. Because we're going to have one extra episode of 1963, a very special very episode. Very special coverage. A very special episode of Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Yo, no, no, I don't want to hang with you no more. Oh, no, a very special episode. That joke is, i got to credit that to some stand-up comedian. Yeah, that. Anyway, the very special episode of American Timelines we're going to cover next week. Yep. The assassination of John F. Kennedy. That's right. It was a big deal. There's a lot of conspiracies out there. Mm-hmm. We're going to tell you what's what, what really happened, and we're going to try to find the comedy in, in JFK's the, in the whole murder. Thing. Yes. The Zapruder film. Yes. We're going to talk about, we're going to interview Oliver Stone next week That's about his right. film. He's going to be on. He's going to be on. Caroline Kennedy's going to be here. Arnold Schwarzenegger's in the Kennedy family now. He married Maria yeah. Shriver. It's true. Maria Shriver is related to a Kennedy or something? She's a cousin, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to have my cousins on, too. No, we're not doing that. Anyway, that's it. All right. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Thanks for listening, folks. And I'm sorry for everything I've done. Yeah, he apologizes. You you don't apologize? Overly. I'm not the one that uses butt buddies liberally. No, butt buddies. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We don't have to. It's we just know it. Funny, but I know. We know it. All right. You're my butt buddy. You are mine too, babe. Okay. When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. Said the wind so proud of hearing a vibe. The six days. One more time, I said, we're so tired. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. America, America, time, time, America, time, America, time.